Welcome back to About Learning. Today I'm joined by Dr. Alex Blakes. Alex is a paediatrician with an interest in academic medicine, which means he wants to expand our understanding of illness and how it can be treated. And of course, he's not alone. As the world has battled a new virus and raced to find a cure, many of us lay people have taken an interest too. Before our eyes, scientists around the world have collaborated to bring us new vaccines in record time. It's opened our eyes to what science can achieve when so many people share a common purpose. So what if we turned our focus to education? Many of our approaches to teaching are driven by what sounds good. But can we take a more evidence-based approach? Last episode, Yoni and I discussed how hard it is to measure the effectiveness of what schools do. This time I'll be asking Alex how we figure out what works in medicine and whether we can apply the same methods to education. Enjoy. Hi Alex, thanks for being on the podcast. Hi Stan, it's lovely to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So you're a medical doctor. How's your pandemic been? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a paediatrician. Uh, I work in the children's hospital. I spend most of my time in the emergency department. Luckily, most children don't become particularly unwell with COVID. Um, so on the, on the whole, it's been relatively okay on that side. Um, well, obviously mindful of how hard some of my, my colleagues on the adult side have been hit. But uh, luckily in paediatrics, we've been, we've, we've been okay. That's good. I mean, we talked a little bit about what a teacher might learn from a doctor, and especially you're interested in the academic side of medicine. And we talked about the scientific method. So just to clarify, what is the scientific method? Before we go into it, I just thought I'd say that I'm quite excited to be having the conversation with you in the first place, actually, because we've had a couple of informal chats about, about exactly this topic and applying maybe like an evidence base to education. It's uh, you know really exciting to be talking about it on the podcast. I suppose the scientific method is basically a framework for creating and testing factual claims about the world, like in its broadest sense. But actually how you apply the scientific method and what, and what approaches you, you use to, to test those factual claims is going to vary like hugely depending on the discipline that you're working in. I suppose in medicine, the most obvious, the most obvious kinds of questions you'd be asking are what treatments are effective in certain diseases or maybe what are the molecular and cellular processes that cause diseases um, and those are the kinds of questions that, that science is well quite well placed to answer yeah i think there's there's going to be parallels between medicine and education but i think they're they're sometimes a bit of a stretch because you know we, we'd like to understand education better one of the things that blew my mind when i trained to be a teacher was that actually we've done loads of research on education and there's loads of great research going on now it's just you won't see much of it reflected in, in what's happening in the classroom. And I'm still sort of trying to figure out why that is. There doesn't seem to be a good link between what's happening in research, let's say, and in schools. Everything has to go through these middlemen of like think tanks, government policymakers, um, politicians, and then finally documents and then schools. It seems quite like quite a contrived process. In medicine, your goal is to make people healthy. Perhaps that's too much of a generalization. In education, our goal is to educate, but what, what it means to educate is, is very much up for debate. I, I, I completely agree. 
I think I'm, I'm not a formal educator. I, I do some informal like education roles, like teaching medical students and things like that. From my perspective, I think there's a huge number of overlaps between the potential for an evidence base in medicine and, and in education. And I think that that is one of them, what you've just described, this difficulty of translating uh, a new finding into, in my case, clinical practice, I guess in your case, like, you know, the front, front line of education. That's a really difficult thing in medicine as well. Like in almost all circumstances, those breakthroughs, those translations, like they don't happen overnight. And uh, yeah, it takes a considerable amount of work to go from a, a research finding to a change in, in clinical practice. And it's essentially all of those bureaucratic steps that you outlined. And that's been in the, the, the news, obviously, a lot more recently in that we've been waiting eagerly for vaccines and they finally arrived. Uh, for the COVID virus. So everyone's become a mini expert in the process of trying out new treatments, in this case, vaccines. In medicine, you've got a new treatment. How do you tell whether it works? There's really a whole host of ways. And there's this essentially a, a hierarchy of different levels of evidence that you can use to judge whether uh, an intervention or a treatment or an exposure is uh, is beneficial in a certain disease. So at the very, very bottom of that hierarchy, you might have uh, an opinion piece written by a professor of respiratory medicine, and he thinks that eating oranges will keep COVID at bay. That's all well and good. He's got lots of clinical experience. Uh, but, you, you know, that's a very like, that's a fairly weak form of evidence. It's highly subjective um, and, and, you know, unbiased. And then going towards not quite the very top, but near the top of that hierarchy of evidence are things like randomized control trials where you're, you're testing a new intervention at scale in an unbiased way um, and observing the differences in, in outcome uh, uh, between people who receive the intervention and people who don't. So really it's by sifting through that hierarchy of evidence um, that, you can, that you can really get to your answer about whether uh, a treatment is effective or not. Coming back to randomised controlled trials, I mean, can you dumb it down for me a little bit? What does the randomised control bit mean? So you take a group of patients that you're interested in and you randomise them, literally using a random number generator, maybe a computer. The first ones were done with sort of sealed envelopes and you randomise them to two different groups. Uh, group one receives... Uh, the treatment, the new exciting drug that you're working on. And uh, group two receives a, a control treatment. So that control, it can be a placebo, so a sugar pill that you expect to have no effect. Or it might be what's probably more ethical is the sort of the standard of care, the routine standard of care that someone with that disease might have. Once you've randomized them and given them the appropriate treatment, Often you blind the participants as well to the treatment that they're receiving. So neither the participants nor the clinicians looking after them actually know what treatment they're getting. Then you follow them up for a period of time and you literally just observe for the difference in outcome between the two groups. If there's a significant difference in the outcome, then that suggests that the treatment is either effective or, or ineffective. So the control bit then makes sure, well, it allows you to compare the effect of the intervention versus what would have happened without it. So the, the difference that it makes, 
the randomized bit is to try to avoid other things coming in. I guess if you gave the intervention to people who chose it, you might be selecting for a certain type of person, maybe someone who's more desperate for a radical treatment. Or if you gave it to the first person to, to come and take it, again, that might select for a certain type of person. So that you've got the sort of control and the randomness gives you like a double security. The randomization really is the, the magic part of the whole process because it eliminates both confounders that, that you know, that you would anticipate and expect, and also unknown variables that, that impact on the outcome. By randomizing the patients, particularly if there's a large enough group of them, you expect both groups to be essentially the same for all those characteristics. The kind of characteristics you might want to like control for uh, age or uh, sex or uh, body mass index. By randomizing them, you essentially guarantee that both the groups will be, will be equally matched for those characters. Yeah. Hmm. I'm just thinking about um, in education, I think just like in medicine, if you could pull off a randomized controlled trial, it would be very reliable compared to other other methods. But I think it would be very difficult because in medicine, you know, you can give someone a pill. They don't know what's in it, whether it's the placebo or the new drug. There's not really anything like that in education. You know, education comes in through your senses. You have to see something or you have to be taught something or you have to hear something it's very difficult to hide from someone whether they're getting the placebo or the the new thing i think there's such an opportunity in education i come at this naively by the way i don't have any background in you know the, the, the education literature but i think there's such an opportunity to to have an evidence-based framework for how we teach our children and i, I really believe that that those those problems that you that you brought up could be overcome um so okay let's let's start with blinding for instance okay so you know obviously obviously you can't blind the children to what intervention they're receiving you know uh, whether they're receiving problem-based learning or like a didactic teaching approach in a way that doesn't matter there's many trials in medicine that aren't blinded that's not necessarily the, the crucial part of the trial uh, for instance the the uh, recent recovery trial uh, involving <clears throat> giving steroids to COVID patients, which gave them a significantly improved uh, outcome and reduced chance of dying. That wasn't a blinded trial, but uh, the effect was strong enough to to uh, overcome that sort of that sort of failure of the trial design. About comparators, actually, I think your your comparator or your control. It can be anything that would be an accepted standard of practice in education. So, you know, one one group you might uh, you might approach a, a problem through a, a problem based learning approach, and another group you could teach didactically. There's no no one can really say at the moment which which approach is better. Probably no one can even say which children favour which of those approaches. I just think there's a fantastic opportunity to be doing it, you know, systematically uh, at scale. I'm glad you think that because I, I think I'm probably on the other side. I'm sceptical and I'd love you to try and convince me like you just did about some of the things that we could do. I think what we haven't covered is the measuring side. You know, in medicine, you want to see if a treatment has made someone more healthy, made them live longer or whatever. I'm sure that has difficulties, uh, but I suspect difficulties in education are even greater. 
if you want to, let's go with your example, uh, we want to know whether this didactic lesson was more effective than the problem-based lesson, you've got to figure out how to measure that. The problem with education is that it's all inside, it's all cognitive, so you've got to come up with some sort of test that determines whether someone has learned something. And that's extremely an extremely slippery idea because you can try and measure whether someone has remembered something. That's probably the easiest thing to do because then you ask them to recall it. But whether someone remembers something, let's say two days after the intervention, is not necessarily a good indicator of whether they've really learned and grown from the experience. And that's before you even get into, let's say, if you're learning about history, history is not just about facts, it's also about understanding. You'd rather really remember whether they understand the thing that's being taught and trying to determine that can be really, really difficult. I completely agree with you that the outcome is critical, right? And in medicine, in a way, we're lucky that for some, in, in some settings, we have hard outcome measures that are pretty unbiased um that you can that you can compare against so the obvious one is uh death or overall survival right so you give someone uh, a, a new chemotherapy drug uh what proportion of patients on the new drug die within six months uh versus patients who receive the stand you know uh, standard regime and you're you're absolutely right that like in education finding the right outcome to measure against is going to be critical because this evidence-based approach is the best way that we have of identifying the intervention that will improve that outcome. The evidence-based approach that I've, that I've outlined, if you wanted it to, if you wanted it to turn its laser beam focus to improving GCSE grades, my God, it would be able to do that. But, you know, at what, at what cost? <laughs> you know, you, you know it, if you really wanted to optimise for that, you'd probably end up producing sort of, you know, little automata who are just capable of regurgitating facts and information and pleasing the exam board. Well, I suspect it's already happening in some schools in the country. There is a trend, in London especially, I'm not sure about elsewhere, of failing schools getting flashy new head teachers whose, whose single role really is just to implement strict rules so that teachers are told exactly what to do Children have to behave in exactly the right way. And there's really clear consequences if people break the rules. They basically create a framework which which runs everything. There's there, there's much less free, freedom for teachers, how they teach. There's no freedom for children and how they learn. But in that hyper-controlled environment, exam grades tend to go up. I'm not sure how we've reached that, whether it's some process of evolution and we figured out what, what maximizes exam grades, but I think it's a bit too much. I think we should be looking inside the schools and, and looking at what effect this is having on the children and wondering, is there anything being lost when we, for example, say that children must be seen and not heard? They have to listen but not speak. What is the hidden cost of that? I wonder if we can flip it on its head as well. I think you and I agree intuitively that probably exam grades are not the best way to be uh, testing students necessarily it's not the thing that we want to optimize for do we have any preliminary ideas about what is do you have any thoughts about that it's so easy to criticize isn't it it's so hard to come up with a better system i suppose you could 
split it into two options. You could keep exam grades, but try to change the exams so they measure something a bit more holistic, desirable. Or you could try and break away completely. I was thinking about this today. Maybe there's some sort of way you could try and test someone's character. And this is, I know this is outrageous, but if you think about the kind of people that are, are happy in the world and successful in the world, you don't necessarily think of people who have a lot of knowledge. You think of the way they act, the way they interact. It's their persona, it's their soft skills. And that might sound very wishy-washy, so let me try and be a bit more specific. People who are confident speakers, people who have some leadership skills, people who can listen and empathize with others, people who are capable of teamwork. I think most of us would agree that the people with those attributes do well in the world. Maybe we should be focusing more on those. And I think I mentioned this way back in the first episode. What's shocking about schools is you can be really successful in school and get high grades and yet be socially impaired, by which I mean really quiet and shy and you don't like speaking to people and you don't uh, speak your opinion. You can completely slip under the radar in school and be showered with accolades without ever addressing that. So that wasn't a very good answer. Uh, but it's a very difficult inst- question. <laughs> yeah, my instinct is we should be taking a step back and thinking, what kind of person are you? I think some people might criticise um, might criticise those measures, and they might they might say, ah, it's difficult to measure teamwork objectively. Ah, it's difficult to measure leadership objectively. Um, my response to that is that you know, from my background in medicine, there's um, there's many tests that we do uh, where the the outcome is subjective. So say an improvement in someone's pain, you know, that's an entirely um, internal, personal and subjective experience. And, um, and you can, you can test for subjective improvements in, in pain and other, you know, other subjective uh, things like quality of life. Um, so, you know, don't, don't, don't let that be an obstacle to, to, to test, to testing things. And also for me, there's nothing inherently wrong about valuing stuff that's hard to measure. I think the main problem with not having a good way of measuring your success is accountability. Right now with exam grades, it's very easy for higher up authorities to say, this school is failing. The children who, who entered this school should come out doing better than they're doing. So something's wrong. And I think that's good. It's good that we can quickly identify when schools are not doing a good job. So if we did move to a system where where it's much more difficult to measure success, it would also be more difficult to identify failure. However, like you said, we can still try to measure subjective things and we shouldn't be put off by the fact it's harder to measure. I also think we're obsessed with being able to judge people quickly. Universities want to be able to judge applicants based on mainly their A-level grades. To some extent, employers want to be able to judge applicants based on the university they went to or the prestige of the companies they've worked for. Why are we in such a rush to judge someone off a couple of things? Maybe it should be a bit more normal to get to know applicants before you admit them or not, or even let people have a trial period in the workplace. 
we've sort of internalized that you should be able to judge someone off a few numbers when actually that system has a really insidious effect on everything. What I mean by that is if you basically say the purpose of education is to get scores that will wow people, you're changing the whole motivation for learning. You're saying, well, it's not so much about learning because you love to learn. It's more about learning so you can impress people with the things you've done. And that's pretty much where we are now. And I think that's really sad. I think there's a lot of lost potential when people are only motivated by external factors. If people are motivated by the recognition they'll get for succeeding in school and the fear of what would happen if they failed. So those are external factors. I think that's a lot less powerful than when people learn because they're really interested in the subject and they're enjoying learning, which is intrinsic. A critical part of of any research application in the medical world is involving patients and the public. And yeah, I wonder if there's a comparable way to involve students or potentially teachers who are really at the coalface of education in, in what they would value, what they want from their education. So you mean asking students and the stakeholders to decide what they should learn? That's exactly how research is guided, right? There used to be a paternalistic model where the research scientist would sit in his ivory tower and he would decide, this is an interesting question to study. I'm going to study it and I'm going to publish on it and it's going to make me a famous scientist. And I think the model is shifting slowly towards asking patients who are going to be affected by the research, what is going to help you and your family? What is, what is the important thing for you um, with this question? Sometimes it's obvious. Sometimes it's, I want to live longer. But especially with chronic diseases, it can be a lot more nuanced and subtle than that. And it's not necessarily the thing which might be uh, immediately scientifically of interest. And I think that's only a good thing. Absolutely. That sounds to me as a non-medic like that makes a lot of sense. I think in education, it makes a lot of sense, too. I mean, only this week I had a debate uh, with my class. Uh, we were supposed to be doing a session on study skills for their upcoming mock exams. And I said, that sounds really boring. Uh, let's just talk about something I want to talk about, which was, well, actually, what I had them do was, was um, watch a video about what's been happening in Pimlico Academy. So Pimlico Academy is a school in London. And a year ago, they brought in a new head teacher who brought in a lot of rules without really asking anyone. He, um, they, he put up the union flag in front of the school. There were a lot more strict rules on uniform, weren't allowed to wear colourful hijabs anymore, and you weren't allowed a hairstyle which blocked people's view of the front of the class, which tended to affect people with afros. And unusually, the students said, well, we don't like this. You're not from here. You come here and you've not asked this and you've just put in all these rules. We don't like it. And there were big protests. Students walked out of lessons. They said that these rules were discriminatory. They asked the head teacher to roll them back. He recently actually said he was going to resign at the end of the year. So the protests have more or less, I guess, worked. I wanted my students to see that and kind of get a feel for what their response was. So I asked them what question they wanted to debate based on that video. And actually, they picked something quite uncontroversial. There, The question they picked was, should students have a say in what's on the curriculum? Such a reasonable question. Um... So that's what we debated. And so that's kind of what we were just talking about, right? Should students get to decide what learning is for? And I was kind of excited because I'm like, yes, I think it's yes. But I didn't want to say anything because I just want the kids to, to debate. 
And um, I think in the end, we basically split, people split into two camps. So everyone basically agreed that something needed to change. For example, in history, they thought that the history curriculum didn't really match what they thought was important about British history. So some people thought, well, we can stick with the top-down approach where people at the top decide what's in the curriculum. However, those decision makers need to better represent everyone. There needs to be a more diverse group of people and perhaps different groups in different regions of the country, so more localised. And the other kind of faction in the classroom was actually it should be more direct democracy. You know, kids should be able to debate and decide in the school what the teachers are going to teach. And that led to a really interesting spin-off discussion because someone said, well, what if the teachers don't know the thing that we want to know? And I think the example that I threw in there was, okay, what if in sociology the students are like, we want to we want to study the sociology of TikTok, but obviously the teachers don't know anything about TikTok, so we can't study it, right? And then a student in the front of the class said, well, actually, maybe it's not the end of the world because we could do teaching in a different way. The lessons could be more about everyone exploring the issue and digging deeper together rather than the teacher just telling everyone the facts. And I was like, I didn't want to say anything. But I was like, yes, I can't believe they're coming up with this. So absolutely, I think kids should be having a say in, in what they learn. Not, not least because they're the ones who are going to have to learn it, but because it could be a great boost to morale. If you're learning something you've actually chosen, that's just jet fuel. I completely agree. It seems self-evident, really. If you ask the question, should children have a stake in what they're taught? I mean, the question answers itself, right? It's not a difficult one. And uh, I'm very impressed that you managed to like engage your class in that way um, and to, to get them talking about interesting issues like that. That's, you know, that's uh, involving the people at the coalface uh, on like a grassroots level, on an individual level. Uh, probably it needs to be more widespread, but uh, but good on you. And what I'd like to explore, you know, in, in future episodes is this idea of student activism, uh, because, again, it's been in the news recently with uh, with Israel, Palestine and the recent conflict there. It feels like schools aren't prepared for students having political opinions. And it feels like a lot of schools don't have platforms in which issues can be discussed in a sort of safe, controlled environment. And I've been hearing kind of staff room rumours about some head teachers simply saying, no, you can't talk about Palestine in school. It's just too inflammatory. We can't have political debates in school. It's too dangerous. And, well, I think that's obviously scary because I agree that, you know, teachers shouldn't be pushing a political agenda in their lessons. However, dealing with conflict and discussing big ideas, that's a huge part of life that's a huge part of being part of a country or community is being able to disagree with others and also being able to change your opinion based on evidence if we could, if we don't have space for that in schools what is school anymore and there's another outcome that is quite difficult to measure and subjective which is being critical right um and uh thinking for yourself um another another potentially difficult thing to measure but that seems self-evidently an important outcome from from formal education yeah perhaps with all this uh, focus on fake news maybe someone will try and measure this 
to how susceptible students are to misinformation. Right, so getting back to, to big data where we were before, I, I think that big data is a big opportunity. Why would we still need to carry on doing these sort of contrived experiments where we randomly control? You know, why do we need all of that in the age of the internet and big data? I think you're right that there is a huge opportunity with big data. And already we we do rightly take a big data approach to many questions in, in medical science. Um, and that is particularly true when you're looking at rare events that have a large effect. So the most obvious example I can think of is um, the yellow card reporting scheme by the Medicines Regulatory Agency in the UK. If you uh, prescribe a medication for someone and they have a rare but serious adverse reaction to that medication, then you can report it online and send in that information to the um, to the MHRA. And so they're collecting reams and reams of this information all the time. And out of that data, they're able to essentially pluck um, rare events that, ha- that happen significantly more frequently with taking a certain medication. That kind of problem is exactly the kind of thing that you can't detect in a randomized controlled trial in which you might be recruiting a couple of hundred participants. You can't reasonably be expected to find that to find that rare event. But when you're looking at really, really large numbers of people nationwide, then you're able to pluck out these rare events. And what's important about them is that they have a large effect. So it's not as though that effect has come about because you're you're looking through the data in a biased way. That effect is so large, maybe it increases your risk of a very, very rare event by 20-fold or 100-fold. There's no conceivable way that that could be down to bias or some nuance in the way you've selected for those people, right? Um, it's it's going to be a, a sort of direct, likely causal relationship. But on the flip side of that is if you go looking for modest effects in big data, which is really where actually the bulk of medical research is, you know, uh, if you're if you're taking a statin, for instance, to reduce your risk of having a heart attack, you need to treat hundreds of people for only one person to feel the benefit of that. Those kinds of small, subtle signals are going to be everywhere if you look at big data. And they're going to emerge because of biases in in the underlying data, in the way that you've looked for it, confounding factors, Essentially, if you're looking for these sort of smaller, subtle effects, that approach is really, it's really dangerous. And I do worry that that, that can be abused or, or misapplied, you know, in, in education just as much as, as in medicine. Absolutely. I feel like a lot of science that we see in the news is a sort of about lifestyle and how lifestyle can affect health. And that's often correlation effects that we've got from, from big data. So eating processed red meats increases your chance of prostate cancer by 14% or something like that. I mean, that's great that we can now find these new correlations between things we didn't know were connected, right? Is that as valuable as it seems, or is there a caveat? The caveat is, what are the factors that that you haven't adjusted for, that you don't know about, that 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 might be interfering with that signal that might be acting as a as a confounder i've got a nice little anecdote that i think tells this story quite well from my my time at a a previous hospital trust they did quite a lot of uh work a pilot study using a machine learning tool to try and predict 
uh, how likely it was that a child who came into the hospital would be admitted to the intensive care unit. And that, on the face of it, is a really useful thing. If you could predict early on um, what made a child likely to be admitted to intensive care, maybe you could act early and intervene early um, to, to, to stop their condition deteriorating. Anyway, the result from this pilot study was that the single biggest factor that determined how likely it was that a child was going to end up in intensive care was their postcode. And that just tells you, I think, everything you need to know about this kind of analysis. Like, that result is completely meaningless. There's no way that you can change the care that you give someone based on their postcode. And biologically, your postcode has, is completely irrelevant to, you know, the, the, the cellular and molecular processes that are, that are causing your disease or causing you to deteriorate. There's really nothing you can do with that information. And um, it's, it's ethically a minefield as well. Yeah, I think we in education we have a lot of difficulties with correlation. There's a really interesting study, well, a series of studies actually, which has sort of been summarised by the Centre for Education and Youth about our developing picture of the education in London. So about a decade ago, it came to everyone's attention that actually London, London schools were performing really, really well. And the reason that first came to people's attention was they started looking at educational outcomes and accounting for de deprivation. So what that broadly means is look at all the most deprived children in the country. Guess which ones are doing the best? The ones in London. Look at the most privileged kids in the country. Guess who's doing the best? Just about those in London. Look at everyone in the middle. Who's doing the best? Which kids in those in that socioeconomic bracket are doing the best? It's Londoners. So actually, as a, as a whole, London schools didn't look that impressive because they have a larger proportion of disadvantaged children but actually taking into account deprivation london schools were actually doing significantly better than any other region in the country and so people obviously wanted to know what was going on they they thought well maybe the secondary schools in london are doing something special and we need, we'll need to learn from that the first bombshell was actually that most of the improvement had already happened by the end of primary school so it almost certainly wasn't something special that secondary schools were doing. Children were just doing well at the end of year six. So maybe there's something magical going on in London primary schools. And then someone basically tried to account for ethnicity. So again, what that means is sort of take an ethnic group and compare how those in London versus those outside of London are performing in schools and see um, if there's a big difference and it turns out there wasn't so what that means is people within one ethnic group aren't doing any different depending on whether they're in london or not overall kids in london are doing better than those who aren't because it has a higher proportion of those ethnic groups who are just doing better so that's a, a really big confounding factor suddenly it looks like well not even the primaries now can take credit for what's happening because by far and away ethnicity is the biggest explainer of what's happening which is kind of interesting but also kind of unsatisfying because in education we want to know what matters and what intervention you can do to to change someone's outcome and you can't change someone's ethnicity or ethnic backgrounds right they did go one level deeper though and they they basically started trying to factor in what they called agency factors and by agency things they meant things that you can change about yourself, like how much homework you do, 
as opposed to things you can't, like your ethnicity or where you live. Um, and so the agency factors seem to account for a lot. And that more, like, to simplify, that basically means in those kids in certain ethnic groups who are doing well, they actually tended to do more homework. And they tended to do more other things that, you know, they tend to have higher aspirations for their education. So there is, they could get some evidence out of that to try and figure out why some ethnic groups were doing better than others. And what's actually most surprising was still school wasn't a big factor. The school they went to didn't seem to make that much of a difference. It was actually expectations, the child's expectations and the the adult's expectations that had the, the biggest made the biggest difference sort of self-belief aspirations and expectations and I don't know where that leaves us in education because how do you shift those aspirations and expectations it's something which I feel like not much energy has been put into just to summarize then I think that you know all that data we had on students all across the country and in London it was really good for identifying correlation but still left us with quite a muddied picture of causation. And it certainly didn't help us decide what to do in the classroom or or whether GCSEs are fit for purpose or whether we're teaching the right kinds of things in school. So it kind of left us still clueless in terms of perhaps the more important questions. Arguably still a valuable piece of work to have done, a valuable thing to look into and important not to take the conclusion at face level. Um, but actually to, to, to dig deeper and to, to try and identify really the, you know, the sort of key learning points that, that are driving, driving that difference. There is potential, I guess, that you might find that there are very few things that you can do in school. There are very few interventions that you can undertake that are going to improve someone's educational outcomes. It might be that it really is all down to intrinsic factors, factors in the home, um, all those kinds of things which really as a teacher are beyond your control still worth learning about even if that is the case absolutely and i think you're right that's a bitter pill to swallow but that doesn't mean it's not true right now your family background is the biggest determinant of whether you'll succeed in school i don't think that's necessarily a bleak message if if that turns out that 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 is the case it doesn't mean that interventions elsewhere can't level the playing field and can't have a big impact on a child's educational outcome. You know, it might not be in school that those interventions need to be made somewhere, somewhere else. That's not necessarily a bad thing. No, you're right. It perhaps um, diminishes the idea of the teacher as the hero, which is not a bad thing. Perhaps we should be focusing on like uh, child poverty or helping parents make good decisions about raising their children. I feel like we've, we've done, we've said a lot about how great randomized control trials are then. Are they perfect? It depends who you ask, I think. <laughs> there are some questions that, that, that can't be answered by science at all, and randomised control trials wouldn't be a useful tool to answer. So the example that I think of is uh, the following question. Should the UK enter a national lockdown in the face of a pandemic? That's not a question that's in the realm of science. That's a judgment call that needs to be made by educated people uh, deciding you know, based on their values, what course of action they want to take. Um, a scientific question would be uh, how many deaths might we expect to prevent if we went into a national lockdown? Um, so, you know, there are some inherent limitations of uh, well, both science and, and randomised control trials. 
more specifically, I guess in the realm of medicine, there are some questions that that medical questions that randomized control trials can't answer or, or that it would be unethical to run the, the study on. So for instance, establishing a causal relationship between smoking and developing lung cancer. That's not something that you can test with an experimental trial because you can't force people to smoke. But observational studies where you literally just compare two groups of people who are matched and differ really only in whether they smoke or not. That's the perfect kind of study design to be answering that kind of kind of question instead. And then also there's there's practical things that would stop a randomized control trial like uh, expense, the time it takes to run one. So there might be a significant delay between giving the treatment and observing the outcome. So you might need to give a treatment for 20 years in order to see the, the outcome that you're interested in. And possibly an RCT wouldn't be well-placed to ask those kinds of questions. But, you know, where it is ethical, where it is practical, they really are the, the gold standard for understanding the relationship between interventions and outcomes. And the ice cream van has just pulled up outside my house. <laughs> um, and, and they can be used, you know, widely. They're not, they're not limited to medicine. I think you can take the same model, the same study design and, and apply it widely as well. Yeah, I'm kind of excited to think what we could maybe achieve in education with some randomised controlled trials. There's so many things, I think. I, I, I was intrigued by what you said about um, the ethics as well. You know, you can't basically say you, you lot have to smoke 40 cigarettes a day and you lot don't um, because we know that's harmful. And perhaps that stands in the way of, of testing out more radical approaches to education too. Have you ever read the book uh, My Family and Other Animals? No, I've heard of it. Okay, well, yeah, so it's about, it's it's written by, I forget who, about his childhood in Corfu being raised by his mum and basically running wild around the island, getting to know all the animals. And he's, he's really passionate about the wildlife on the island, has loads of adventures, and he doesn't spend a day in school. It would be really interesting to see what would happen to a child who who didn't have school. I think a lot of people assume that they would never learn to read, they would never learn discipline, they would never aspire to anything, and they'd probably just end up playing computer games. And what would be really interesting would be to, to see what would happen if you said, this town's not going to have a school and you guys can just make do. Completely unethical, because we know that uh, likely a lot of children would not get an education and that would affect their whole lives. But how else can we gather evidence for radical alternatives to education. It doesn't have to be no school, but it could be a radical different way of running a school. How else can we get any reliable evidence? I think a hundred years ago, it might have been radical not to cane students at school, right? And now I think that's fairly well established. It depends how radical you want to go. If I was being a pragmatist about it, I'd probably start with, with simple questions and, and maybe take for granted that going to school is a good thing, that being in lessons is a good thing, that, you know, that, uh, you know, class sizes they are, are approximately right. And maybe start with more simple questions just to establish, uh, maybe a more evidence based approach in, in routine practice. But then, then you can start pushing the envelope after that. I'd like to ask you one final question. How could education improve people's health outcomes throughout their life? I think it's a really difficult question. I think it's fairly well established 
that a higher educational attainment correlates really well with better outcomes from all sorts of diseases and diseases that you'd have thought would affect educated people and people uh, uh, less educational attainment equally. Cancers, heart diseases, you name it, there's a relationship there. It's really difficult to tease apart the, the direct effect, but I could, I could speculate a little bit. Just having a better relationship with one's body and a better appreciation for, for the needs of your body through simple classes like PE and biology, understanding the harmful things that you can do to your body like uh, smoking or drinking to excess or exercising to excess and not eating enough. And then possibly softer measures, sort of safety net measures. Schools as a place where professionals are able to pick up on children in need or identify children in need. Or schools as uh, a place where they can signpost children to appropriate resources. Um, those kinds of things. I think there's a fairly uh, good infrastructure around that. And even in my work in the emergency department, I've called schools a couple of times to check up on the social background of some of these kids who I've been seeing and been worried about. And on the whole, had sort of good responses. So I think some of those measures are already in place. I suppose there's a lot of room for improvement. I wonder, I wonder what you think. I think the, the, the latter thing you mentioned about teachers being on the lookout for, for signs of problems at home or problems with health, I think that's true. I think we are getting a lot better at that. I think perhaps we are missing some tricks in terms of the former, which is equipping young people with the knowledge to choose a healthy life. I think making good choices for your whole adult life depends on understanding the new science that's coming out. Uh, for example, in the COVID pandemic, it's a good idea to get vaccinated. And we want to raise children who are able to make good decisions about things like that. So I think we could do a lot better job at inoculating children against misinformation. Something which now seems like it really should be part of the curriculum. And I've had to a few times explain to people that it's not. There is no requirement to teach children how to identify misinformation. Which is sort of shocking, especially to people with a science background, because in school, for example, science is taught like a series of facts, whereas arguably the more important thing to understand about science is that it's a process and it's a lot about skepticism and examining evidence rather than memorizing facts i think that goes with our question and and that's what makes it interesting uh learning reams of facts is dull but being able to think about things in a critical skeptical thoughtful deep way that's what's interesting right alex Bleggs, thank you so much for being on the show Stan, it's been a pleasure. Congratulations on the podcast. I've really enjoyed it so far. Keep it up. That was Alex Blakes. A real pleasure to record. I hope you enjoyed listening. What we didn't explore was the link between research and practice. There are researchers applying scientific methods to see how we can make schools better. But their findings often don't translate into a change in approach in schools. The government gets to direct school funding. It has some say on the curriculum, and it sets national policy on things like special educational needs and exclusions. 
The government does sometimes use big data to justify its decisions, but there are signs that politics might drive policy more than evidence does. Theresa May famously tried to open new grammar schools, despite a lack of good evidence that grammar schools provide a net benefit. It certainly looks like she was trying to appeal to a certain class of voting parents. The current administration has taken it for granted that hiring private tutors, another favourite of the middle classes, will be the best way for schools to make up for lost learning. Where's the evidence? The government has the power to make radical changes, like overhauling the exam system, but it doesn't look like any big changes are coming soon. When it comes to improving education in the medium term, most of the opportunities lie in schools. They decide how to teach, they decide how much emphasis to place on exams, they set the culture of the school. But the tether between schools and academic research is very slender, and often non-existent. Schools seem to be run either by tradition, or in the name of exam success, or, increasingly, however pleases the parents. In the last decade, as the Conservatives have striven to give parents more choice, the world of schools has become more of a marketplace. In order to fill their roles, schools have to convince parents that they're a good choice. This builds in accountability, which is a good thing. But parents often don't have enough information to decide what a good school looks like. Many, like Alberto from last season, are mesmerised by strong exam performance. And others are swung by superficial factors, like the smartness of the uniform. Parents' increased influence might actually pull schools away from an evidence-based approach to teaching. I'd like to see more schools using research to justify their decisions, but I'd advise everyone to scrutinise that research. Does it assume that exam results are a perfect proxy for success? Does it factor in students' freedom and well-being? And, of course, does it take a scientific approach, with large sample sizes, control groups, and so on? This has been About Learning. Thank you for listening.